I was at this company, Blade Logic. I had gone 18 months, Michael, and I hadn't sold a thing, nothing. Okay, so this is a real uh, intense environment. Hi, I'm Michael, founder of Quinn, and this is The Winwire, where we hear stories from industry leaders about their transformative career moments, including deals that shaped entire companies. Today's guest is Richard Rivera. Richard is a sales powerhouse, having led teams at software stalwarts like Dialpad, Fuse, and Medallia. After more than two decades of mastering complex selling, Richard finally codified his secrets in his new book, The Champion Cell, where he shares his proven blueprint for developing authentic buyer relationships to close big deals. Richard and I dove into his personal sales journey from struggling newbie at Blade Logic to record-breaking deal closer. He talked about some of the pivotal moments that shaped his career. He's an engaging storyteller and thinker, and I love both exploring those stories and hearing his wisdom on how to put people in relationships at the center of everything we do and win more in the process. Without further ado, our episode with Richard. Richard, welcome to the podcast. How's it going, Michael? Thanks for the invite. Of course, of course. And, you know, I wanted to have you on regardless. You were on the target list. But, of course, you also recently wrote a book, Champion Cell. We'll come back to that later, and we'll talk about some stories today that might connect right into it. But given you've been in so many legendary sales organizations, from Blade Logic to Medallia, I know you were wrestling with a few of your marquee deals to go talk about. Yeah, absolutely, dude. And, and listen, uh, with everything you're doing in, in the Windwire and and Cowen, your your software platform, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're essentially curating stories in the field. These value customer stories, and you're curating them, and you're you're integrating them into not only the systems and the processes and the CRMs, but you're also you're also integrating it into the, the kind of the go-to-market process in the day-to-day. So I love the Windwire and I love the podcast for that because as leaders, um, we, we, do get, we do tend to get really caught up in our processes and our methodologies and our playbooks. But at the end of the day, it, when we lead with the, the empathy of this dynamic between the seller and the buyer, um, we we find ourselves maybe changing uh, some of our priorities and approaches and and in the book um and where i talk about emotional connection being one of the, you know one of those five elite habits and the foundational habit when you think about your value proposition and even what you're doing in the podcast of bringing the stories to the front and getting them integrated into the day-to-day mindset that's really what emotional connections about and in the book i talk about customer stories one of the most powerful tools that we have to do that you, you think about when you're telling a story you are disarming a buyer uh, because first you're creating familiarity w- with them it's not about your pitch and your product you're you're disarming them which is critically important in the survival brain and you're you're getting them familiar about the topic and then the content of the story itself when told right it becomes this relevant and relatable um, connection that, that, that they now have to you. Without having that emphasis of emotional connection, it actually sends a lot of your conversations and your deals sideways because you really never made that connection. And so way before we even can imagine having a champion selling on our behalf, we've got to get that connection. There's no more powerful way to do it is, than, than these stories, these relatable, familiar, and relevant stories. So Good on you on what you're doing with Cohen. It's always super impressive to me when I see entrepreneurs start companies and then resiliently follow through. I can tell how passionate you are about it, man. So keep it up. And so, you know, you asked me to talk about um, my, my favorite story, most impactful story. I told you there, there was two that were, <laughs> that were so um, uh, career-changing and life-impacting for me that I could not talk about them both. So I'll, I'll try to be concise, but... Um, to your point, um, just to understand how I how I kind of relate to this as a rep. I was at this company, Blade Logic, where a lot of people have heard about this, and I had gone eighteen months, Michael, and I hadn't sold a thing, nothing. Okay, so this is a real uh, intense environment. Um, the the level of sellers, but even the level of leaders, frontline, second line managers, I have never seen anything like it since. You could learn from everybody. So we would go on these, these QBRs where we would, we would all be in a big, big conference room for several days. And our leader, John McMahon, who obviously people know him as a go-to-market leader and a, and a, and a business leader, but 
It's one of the best teachers I have ever seen. And I was, my confidence was dwindling, dude. All right. 18 months is a long time, man. Okay. Well, how were they even keeping you at this point? How were oh, they even deciding man, to still keep I, you on board? How did the, you convince them? It's called grace uh, and empathy. Okay. And I'm serious about that. A lot of people I've heard talk about McMahon and, and, and I'm talking about him because you cannot be successful, like really successful in life without leaders investing in you and making a big impact somehow. But he's, he had this reputation of being this intense, hard-ass kind of guy. And certainly he's a tough dude, but man, the level of empathy of going into a leadership role and never forgetting what it was like to carry that bag on a daily basis, what it was like to be a rep. He walked in the room teaching and he walked in the room with a standard of excellence. However, he walked in the room with empathy. I just got to a, a point where my confidence was, was just, it was just so low that I actually resigned. Called him up and I was like almost in tears, man. I'm freaking out because this is a big decision. He had more confidence in me. And then he told me the two or three reasons that I was going to be successful. And he invested in me to, to keep going. Um, the other thing though, there was two things that really turned turn my confidence around. It's, the, it's really the point of the wind wire. We would sit in QBRs and I would listen to the reps stand up and tell their stories. I'll never forget Scott Sinatra, who's now his own entrepreneur. Scott Sinatra telling his story of Eli Lilly and how he turned this deal around. Um, Marty Carty telling stories of ADP and others where he turned it around. And Mark Musselman, uh, Wells Fargo. I mean, I could go on about all of these stories. And even our European team, they were my f the favorite guys to listen to. And Jeremy Duggan and, and Cedric Passion, Steve Harkel, all these guys. Uh, and, and Luca, Luca Lazaro, they would tell their stories two decades later. I could tell you the telecom Italia story of that, that Cedric Pesh wanted blade logic, right? So that, that was so foundational to kind of remind me that, look, dude, if you can't believe in yourself, at least you got other people around you who, who are. So that kind of, that kind of led to these two deals that I wanted to talk about. And I appreciate you asking. So. There's, there's two different deals intentionally, because I believe there's really two types of sales opportunities that we essentially work. One where there is a known problem to solve and ones where there's an, there's an unknown problem to solve. Um, when you, when you realize that there's a problem to solve, because look, man, everybody has pain. There's pain everywhere that you're, you're, you know, you're going to solve. That's a, that's a far cry from having a qualified deal. And so making that connection when there wasn't a known problem is kind of the second deal I'll talk about with, with AT&T. So um, the first deal, Dell, I would call this more of a, a traditional complex enterprise solution cell. So big, big enterprise company. But like I said, they had a known problem to solve. They wanted to talk to different vendors. And um, a good friend of mine, one of our top engineers, Sean Barry, uh, called me up and said, hey, I, I know one of the guys at Dell. There's a really big opportunity there. Very low likelihood that we'll win it because it's, <laughs> it's really complex and it's going to be tough, but do you want to do it? And, and, um, and I was like, mission, mission impossible, you know? So uh, I was all in. And um, when we started engaging with them, first, let me back up. Uh, like I said, the problem that they were there to solve was number one, Sarbanes-Oxley. Uh, in the early 2000s, in my hometown of Houston, uh, this wonderful company named Enron um, <laughs> created, that's sarcasm, right? They, they created so much distrust in public shareholders because of some really bad uh, dishonest practices. That and a few other companies, uh, Qualcomm and a few others, just accelerated this need to have more governance and compliance. The problem with all those lawyers putting together Sarbanes-Oxley was... Um, they didn't realize how complicated IT environments had gotten. And this is the time when um, many different platforms were coming into play in environments. So now we talk about open source like it's, like it's, like it's, a, like it's a super common thing. This is when Linux was getting started in Red Hat. And so you had, all these different, you had all these different platforms in the environment and you had to have compliance across all these different platforms. These are like languages. These are like different skill sets of, of architects and engineers, et cetera. And you also 
because of the same problem with managing all these systems, you, you, you started seeing outages because you just couldn't control the change that was happening. So we were, we were addressing two big problems, Blade Logic was. We were the one cross-platform solution for both managing all these servers and systems, as well as providing you know, security and compliance to them. So you know, it, was a, it was a really natural problem fit. However, the, the selling environment that we walked into, and this is why it's my aha deal, was so, so intimidating because A, these directors that we walked into the first meeting and it's like 10 directors sitting around a table. And what I mean by directors is the team that owns engineering, the team that owns architecture, the team that owns applications, the teams that, that own security, the teams that own compliance, all of the power players for Dell were all sitting in the room. They were all incredibly, I have a, I have a, a, a sweet adjective for them in the book, but they were all very um, uh, confident in themselves. And you could see that there was tension in the room between the different guys. The different guys. Uh, there was competition. Um, and um, it, it, it was even worse because the environment, they'd, they just had like 20% of their, um, of their workforce laid off. So A, we, we have more platforms and, and tens of thousands of servers to manage. And it's, so it's more complicated and more specialized, and yet we have less people to do it. And so there's a lot of stress. Um, the SOX fines were already coming in. The outages were still happening. So there's a lot of pressure and they didn't want, and they told us this, they didn't want another arrogant sales team to come in who think that their products solved world hunger with a magic button. And they led with that and they just, they wouldn't, um, they wouldn't stand for it. And so what did I learn from this deal as I, as I talk about it, two big things I learned that from the from the, I guess the story I'll, I'll tell. First thing I learned is process. We talk about, you, you mentioned coming from sales organizations that have rigor and discipline around sales process and qualification methodology and all that. Well, you got to be careful. You can't get so brainwashed to think that process comes before people. We don't sell to companies, we sell to people. And you got you to gotta do that with empathy and you got to do that with some give and take. I was, a, I was a big football growing up. And so I had this electric football game. You'd buy the different teams and they had all the different colors. And, I, and I, I was a Houston Oilers guy. So I had number 34 and I had Earl Campbell. And basically they would vibrate all around the board when you turn it on. And somebody at Mattel, I guess, thought that this was a good idea. Let's just put them on there. Let's push the button and they're going to vibrate all over the place. And that's like not having a sales process. All the best players on the field, best technology money can buy. And yet we have total chaos in terms of where we're going. The second purpose of a sales process is to be aligned to the buying process, right? If, if you don't have a baseline of, look, this is what we believe is a good practice, then really all you're doing is just completely doing, doing business the way they want to. And that's not always best, but John McMahon wasn't one of these um, inflexible binary people. And, and Dell said, look, we don't care about your sales process. We don't care about your commissions. We don't care about your quarter. We have to solve these problems and it's all about us. And I, and I had this PowerPoint presentation that had been prepared and, and the marketing team kind of like made it pretty and made it extra nice for Dell because everybody knew about this meeting we were going on. I literally shut my laptop and I looked at Sean and I said, look, Sean and I today, we have no idea if we're the right solution for you. We've, we've got some really big customers who have really complicated environments. We have no idea, guys. Okay, so you, you, can, you can chill with all the pressure and the bravado because you're not going to get that arrogance from us. We're just as curious as you are. But I want you to tell me what you want from us. Like if you had your ideal sales team, tell us what that, that would look like. And they did. They kind of looked at each other and for a second, kind of in shock that I was asking this question, but then they told us and everybody had a different perspective. And if someone didn't talk, I called on them. I said, you, you didn't say anything. What, what do you think? And so they shared with us and I wrote and I wrote it down. And that's a big lesson for salespeople. Even if you don't need to write down things to remember, um, when you, when you show the buyer that, that you're listening because you're writing it down, it makes them feel like you're listening. It makes them feel like what they're saying is important. So I was writing it down and then I repeated it back to them. And I said, Sean, anything else that you can think of? Cause I know 
you were a sysadmin, you, you were in their shoes. So I said, okay, folks, is this the plan? Are we agreed? This is what we're going to do. They said, yep, sounds good. And I said, Sean, let's get into the product and we're not going to give you a canned demo. And so I, I got to say, I, I feel like we really built champions. So in the book, I talk about these champion milestones and it's really, really critical that salespeople understand not only is it super, you know, important to build a champion, um, but how does that human being come to this place of putting their political capital, the reputation, the credibility on the line for you, a stranger that they never seen before? How does that happen? They have to, they go through these milestones sequentially. All human beings do, and it's actually more associated with our psychology than it is than it is business. The first milestone is that they've got to get connected to us and the solution. It's kind of the so what. Why would I emotionally even care? So, like I said before, what problem is this solution solving for, and what unique outcomes can it deliver? And do any of those things have anything to do with what I really care about? Most salespeople never get there. They make the buyer figure it out on their own. And so part of that is through messaging, but it's also mindset. John Kaplan calls it an outside-in mindset. I walk in the room and, and I'm going to put my product, my differentiation, I'm going to put it over the side in this bucket here. We're going to come back to it. But before we get there, let's just figure out if there's a connection. So that happens over, over the first few interactions. So when they're really connected to the value proposition, then they go through a milestone of commitment. So for Dell, in those initial meetings, I was just trying to get them connected to it because in their perspective, they figure we were lying about 80% of what we saw for and 80% of what we do in anyway. And it's not that we weren't lying. It's just that what we were solving for was very complicated. And the truth was both us and our co competitor Opsware, which is the Mark Andreessen, you know, uh, Horowitz story, we both struggled to to deliver on all of the different things that we said we could. But from their perspective, if we could just deliver on a few of the most important things, that's all that mattered. And so that's all we focused on. And they got connected to that. And quite honestly, even though we went through um, a lengthy sales process, um, I feel like a lot of those guys had already emotionally made that decision that they were really trying to validate us. Like I said, I learned a couple of things. Um, the, the first thing I learned was this alignment of process. We had to we had to gel this process and I'll kind of give an example of that in a minute. The second thing I learned was just the, 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 the non-negotiable power and purpose of champions. Because the more people we would meet in trying to get their commitment, we started finding these, what we call enemies, people who were actively sabotaging, um, going with us. They actually wanted to do it themselves. They wanted to build it themselves. They believed they could do it with, with kind of red hat tools and things like that. All those things were just going to perpetuate the problem even more. And so, how did you even, are there any moments where you even remembered encountering those enemies or how did you, how do you, how do you well, see them in the wild? Well, listen, um, here's the number one factor for this deal. Um, it was my team. So they were special operations and I knew it going in. They were the best of the best. I brought in these guys, Sean Berry, but Devaker Prabhakar, Prabhakar. I brought in Frank Lamprea, Tim McDonald. I brought in the best to sit there and on, on that side of the other side of the table, all of them had done the job of most of those people, right? They had been architects, they'd been engineers, they'd been sysadmins, and they were very credible, super, super intelligent, and they were technical problem solvers. But they also gave me a, an empathy that I, I, I just, no matter how hard I tried to be empathetic, I just didn't get the world of a lot of these people. And so I'd be sitting there and Frank would tap me on the leg and he'd go, that guy right there, he doesn't like us and here's why. Devaker would be like, hey, what'd you think of that meeting? That guy over there, he hates us. And here's why. And that was the education of, if you want to build champions, you've got to have the mindset and the intent of empathy. I call it in the book, empathetic intent. It's one thing to feel empathetic, but what are you going to do about it? And so I would invite the right people to the meetings. We would, we would plan before the meeting. We're going to learn these new people. We're going to learn the decision criteria. And then we're going to go back to our champion. And so we kept circling back to the main champion, this guy, Cole Crawford. We kept going back to him and there was a few others and we would circle back with really candor. We're, we're getting this vibe from this person, this vibe from this person. And he'd be like, yep, you're right. They hate you. 
but here's, here's how we're going to deal with it. And, um, eventually they got, they got to a point of commitment because we had built enough consensus that you're never going to build champions out of everybody. In fact, you're going to, you're going to have enemies until the deal closes often, uh, especially in large, you know, bureaucratic enterprises. And so we just intently kept focusing on those people. And then that special operations team I told you about, um, they convinced me that our sales process was arbitrary. And in fact, one of them just said to me, you know, our sales process doesn't really mean anything to any of our customers. I said, what do you mean? It, it, it's arbitrary. It is just the, this, this set of stages that we made up, but all that really matters is that we feel like we're, you know, we're in control and we're aligned because these guys wanted to go right to a proof of concept. Well, in our sales process, that was one of the last stages. But I, I went to, I went to Chewy's to have tacos with Cole and, and, and I said, look, our sales process, and I'm going to be accountable for this is that we have these things in place. Can you help me? He goes, man, I totally get that, but that's not going to, that's not going to happen here. And let me tell you why. And if you need me to, I'll talk to your manager. I'll, I'll, I'll put it in an email. And I said, I may, I may need you to do that. And he did. And he talked to my manager, Richard Dugan, and he explained why we had to do this proof of concept early. And it's that third milestone I call the closure milestone. This is where trust really comes in. If, if the buyer is going to make a decision to start working toward closure, that means they're going to really get serious about buying process and procurement and all of these things that you got to do to get your ducks in a row and all these people you got to get involved. It's no longer just us looking at a product anymore. So to get to that milestone of closure, they've got to reach a state of trust. We were going to have to prove our competencies. And we were going to have to do it in their environment. And so that special ops team of mine, uh, like I said, a lot of times you build technology that's really impressive, but it still can't do everything that you want it to do. And just as long as you're honest about that, most, most enterprises would appreciate that. Um, but there was a couple of things that were non-negotiable decision criteria. They would have killed the whole deal. So my guys stayed up all night long in a hotel and, and the guys at Dell probably shouldn't hear this. But they stayed up all night long coding. That code got into our, our core product moving forward. They built it in that hotel in one night and through some kind of protection from our champion, we, we passed uh, the proof of concept through that. Through that, um, that Someone told me a long time ago, I think it was Tony Robbins, to have great success in life, it's not about your resources, it's about your resourcefulness. I learned that from my SE team at Blade Logic. So, and a lot of other guys did too. Any any Blade Logic seller that you were to get on this podcast, every dang one of them are probably going to tell you that the secret weapon of Blade Logic was our pre-sales team. We, you know, fast forward, we got a, a consensus of champions. Then we had to get through this milestone of what I call the milestone of winning. But um, to kind of bring this deal to a close, proof of concepts done. We're we're selected. But like I said, they had just laid off 20% of their workforce and they were having all these fines. So we were a multi-million dollar solution. I think this is top three, maybe the biggest deal. And it's probably top three deal in company history. And so we already got it denied the first time. We're in the negotiation with the best business case and everything has been resolved. And we're in the final negotiation. My, my manager, Richard Dugan and I, Richard, uh, Richard was a super smart guy, played football at Rice University, high IQ. He was a great coach to have in the deal. We walk into this room. This is a this is a you know this is a famous play that you would hear about Dell procurement. There's this one room that they bring vendors into, Michael. It's 90 degrees. Okay, they'd set the temperature at like 90 degrees. So you're sitting there sweating, and you basically walk in, and cold as they could be, they tell you they're not doing the deal. This is never going to happen. You're wasting your time. And my champion was in the deal, and and I coached him up and we had him ready and he completely kind of let us down in the meeting. Um, I mean, he's a human. They're laying off people. He's getting a little nervous, right? So we basically held our ground based on the role play that Richard and I had already had. And we talked to our boss, Scott Davis, and we talked to John McMahon. We saw ourselves in this moment and I'm kind of green a little bit, you know, and I'm watching as we handled it. And quite honestly, Richard's the one who handled it. And we were able to make it clear to them that our price and our value were completely congruent. And, and if they couldn't get aligned to that, even though they had 
incredibly talented, highly credible people on their team that they have empowered to solve these two big problems. You've empowered these people. And if you don't want to follow their leadership, that's, that's on you, okay? But you hired them and empowered them for this. And our solution, um, it, the value is, is exactly this. The price is this. And it's okay if we don't do this deal. And we got up and we walked out. And let me remind you, Michael, I hadn't closed a deal in 18 months. Um, I had credit card debt. Okay. I had kids, you know, uh, you know, that were, that were growing. Look, man, every, every reason to just do an eight, I was, I was fine with an $800,000 deal. And I just, I just wanted to get a deal done. Our deal was almost $3 million. We got called back a few days later. They said, we're going to do the deal. We negotiated. They tried to move us and, and we closed the deal at that same price. So what I learned, look, a process has a reason, but it needs to be applied with empathy. You need to get alignment to your buyer and you need to have common sense there and you need to do it collaboratively. And then number two, the power of champions, we needed him and we empowered him and we challenged him and all the others in there. So that's why I call it my aha deal. I learned so much that I've applied over the years and, and led on many, many, many uh, big deals uh, over the years. But then Richard mentioned why this deal and most of his story at Blade Logic almost never happened. And the biggest story that I remember internally that was a bit of a shock, we had a lot of, like I said, real, real um, confident managers on our team at Blade Logic. One of the other managers, and another state, like an Arizona dude, um, he always liked to be the smartest guy in the room. And he stood up at a management meeting and he basically told everybody, he's like, we've been talking about this deal for quarters. This deal's never going to happen. You know, the rep, the rep's probably just not good enough. It's never going to happen. Um, and uh, we probably should let that guy go. And our CEO at the time, um, I didn't know him very well. Now he's one of the most successful CEOs in, in software history. He's just not that easy to fool. I mean, he's a really smart guy. And he kind of like asked a few questions. And he saw the, the, the core fundamentals that he had learned from McMahon about deal qualification. And he just said something like, I don't know about that. So um, what do you think, Richard Dugan? And Richard calmly without getting defensive, explain why he really thought the deal was going to happen. And he thought, and he explained what the risks were. And if guys, if you don't like the risks and you want to get rid of Rivera, you know, it's your choice, but I wouldn't. And here's why. And I learned a lot. Like I learned about loyalty. I learned about empathy. I learned about the, the intellectual belief. We, we say that, you know, especially in the book, we talk a lot about buying is emotional and we make a, we make 98% of our decisioning is emotional. Okay. That's how the brain works. But be calm in the moment and to calm your emotions because your intellect says, look, qualification A, B, C, X, Y, Z is there. Champions, there. And Scott Davis, who was our VP, he did the same thing, right? And I already mentioned I had a pretty big team. Then um, I'll support that person with empathy and I'll figure out what exactly is getting in their way. And, and I've just learned over the years that goes, that's going to be a lot more productive for the organization than just quickly turning people over. That's the power of medic. Let's get rid of the emotion. Let's really think about the person in the deal and then let's have their back and support them. And that goes a long way because you like these deal stories that you're doing with, with Cohen and, and this podcast, the knowledge and the confidence of your stories, your value proposition, your differentiation, the, the competition man, that's invaluable. And so if you can be patient and empathetic, if, if they have the right traits, I learned that on the deal too. So I learned a lot. That's why I call it my aha deal. I could go, I could write a whole book about that deal, man. So. <laughs> well, and, and one question just based on what you just said too, is you talked about confidence. Yeah. And this was some, something where you already knew they wanted something. So you kind of had a, a sense they're going to have to do something anyways. Um, but even though you had this great champion, as you mentioned, different things went sideways that you didn't necessarily know. And so how did you have that confidence when they told you, we're not going to do this thing, by the way, to be able to walk out? And what did you, what did you even say back to them? What do you say to someone in a moment like that yeah. where you think they're bluffing, but you're not sure and you got to be nice to them and kind of humor them a little bit? Yeah. I'm not going to quiz you, but if you remember in the book, there's something I call the certainty loop. 
And it's a psychological principle that has been around for a long time. And essentially, when we, the way that we develop absolute certainty in something, okay, is when we've experienced it already. I hadn't experienced a win at Blade Logic, and I certainly hadn't experienced that deal yet. But the certainly certainty loop starts with it's kind of like a circle. If we believe there's a lot of potential, we'll we'll have a higher energy of action. We believe there's lower potential. We'll have a lesser energy of action. I hadn't had any results at Blade Logic. Um, John, we basically would walk through scenarios all the time, and, it, and it's called visualization. And so it's one of the sometimes I I see is a and I don't know if listeners agree, but it can sometimes be a lost craft and how we lead people. So before the big meeting, before the big negotiation, before the demo, the power of like walking through how this is going to go, right? What if this goes sideways? We haven't met this person. She runs this division and we, we don't know anything about her needs. What would be her issues? So we had role-played so many of those scenarios. And then um, when the time would come, I just felt a calmness that I'd never really had before. I was really nervous early in my sales career. I was one of those sellers that just for the sake of pride, I didn't want anybody questioning my, my proficiency, my ability. So I would be alone a lot. And I would say, I'm going to prove it. I'll show them. They don't, you know, that was the dumbest thing I could have done for, for several years. Knowing that, and, and I had to have a manager just kind of bonk me on the back of the head and go, dude, you don't have all the answers. Neither do I. Let's work as a team. When I did that and I learned that, it created confidence and you need certainty, you need confidence because if you don't believe, the buyer won't believe. And so I never, I would never say that I personally walked in with a lot of swagger. I'm not a swagger, confident, overconfident kind of dude, but I definitely walked in with confidence and I walked in with empathy because of the team I had around me for sure. Got it. And, and you just, and, and did you say to the buyer on their side? Thank you for the opportunity, <laughs> ma'am or sir. Or did you say, let me convince you? No, I mean, they look, they made it clear you're not going to convince us. They taught me how to sell. That team, we say, we say we had a champion. It was really five or six guys. They taught me how to sell, but they knew I was open. Um, in the book, I, I think I referenced that they didn't want me to become another sales idiot. I mean, they said that. And, and they told me about the salespeople at our competitors, they would, they would mock them. They would make fun of them. And I'm like, dude, I don't want them talking about me like that. So I would listen and I would learn. So I, I really learned from the customers. Um, so they made it clear to me, don't sell us, don't try to sell us. And I didn't want to, I never really wanted to be a cheesy salesperson. I, I wanted to educate. I wanted to teach. I'll tell you about this other deal in a second, but like even, even at Dialpad, you know, the, this is a company who had never done more than probably you know, a hundred K deal, but I hired a guy that I just believed in and Kelly free. And he and I had been through this on a Southwest airlines deal at BMC. We both had certainty and confidence. We saw a one and a half million dollar deal at WeWork. We, we confidently believed it. We saw it because we'd been there before we had certainty and we literally turned a hundred K deal. Kelly and the team turned a hundred K deal around into a million and a half, uh, deal, the biggest, you know, transaction they'd ever had. There's so many stories like that. At every company I've been at, let me tell you something. There's nothing more uh, impactful to a seller than certainty. Okay. It's more than confidence. It's certainty, absolute certainty. And if they hadn't done it yet, you got to get them visualizing it and, and you got to talk about it and you got to walk them through. You got to get them experiencing it, whether it's other reps and other deals or having Scott Sinatra stand in front of us and tell us about his Eli Lilly deal. Um, it's super powerful. So, yeah. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And uh, that certainty is hard to replicate. I think it's the reason so many people fail so early in a company and don't, don't ever get, don't ever acquire that, especially yeah. in these harder times. But um, yeah, but yeah. And so spe you know, speaking of setting a new standard, uh, you know, it would be great to hear a little bit about, uh, about your other deal and how you kind of generated that problem and that pain and yeah, executed. Yeah. I mean, the AT&T AT deal, um, was very different. Like I said, the, there's kind of, there's deals where you're solving a known problem and, um, and then there's deals where the buyer uh, has an unknown problem to solve and they're not looking, there's no RFP, there's no active evaluation. And I would say most deals are probably in that second bucket. Um, so 
the other difference, and the reason why I wanted to talk about this, not only was it like my life-changing deal, it was my first, you know, seven-figure commission check. It was really life-changing in many ways. But the difference was it was more of a, a, a global account. I, when we got acquired, so the, the importance of the Blade Logic deal was it was right after the IPO. And, and, and I know one of your other um, guests talked about kind of the, the importance of IPO timing. And what he did is ServiceNow pre-IPO. Well, post-IPO, it's really critical that you immediately start hitting the number because there's a lot of stories in tech where they just take a dive. Uh, and so this was really stressful time for us. So you're in survival mode to get the deal done post-IPO. So AT&T was post-acquisition. We, we had an IPO and then we got acquired for about 900 million by BMC. And so they had, this, is, this was really cool because I learned the power of the commercial power of technical leverage. Okay. What I mean by that is the power of the, the leverage of acquisition. When you're at a bigger company and you acquire multiple companies and you have a multitude of technologies, whether it's an integrated platform or not, time has proven that there's an enormous amount of potential leverage and value in that. It's just not always as simple as we think. And so AT&T, they asked me to take on this global account, this really big, huge global account. And there was no expectation, really. It was more of like, a, hey, last guy didn't have any success. Let's see if you can have some success. So um, it was really interesting to me because from what I heard, it, it just made sense that there would be opportunity for us. And I didn't really understand why there wasn't. So I interviewed the outgoing team and it was pretty clear. They were selling in the traditional sense, which is I have a product or a set of products each one has its own set of value differentiators and, and, and unique capabilities. And I'm going to demo it and make sure you understand it. And you figure out where it's going to fit. And you tell me um, whether or not you want to move forward with it. And I'm just going to go down the list. And so with all due respect, that's kind of how they were selling to the account. They were just going down the list, essentially selling as if they were a one product startup. And in our first meeting, that's what they did. He gave me this, he, he sent me this list. I talk about this in the book. And I said, what's this, man? And he says, this is our account plan. And I said, this is a list of products. He's like, yeah, well, the second page, there's an org chart, and this is the list of products. And these are all the people that we've pitched all these products to. So we've kind of like pitched them all. Um, there's a couple left on the list. So good luck, man. Maybe you'll do better than us. And it was like this almost arrogant, like if you, if you sell anything, it'll be because of us. We teed it up for you. And I immediately knew that, look, I don't know a whole lot about global account management. I'd never done this before, but I knew that just few, through like five minutes of study that AT&T was going through this massive, massive initiative. They actually had a name for it called One AT&T. I didn't see that that type of problem alignment, emotional selling was, was happening. And so we got really curious. And I said, look, just give me a team that... Uh, to help me and make sure that they're highly intelligent. I said, give me high IQ and EQ. <laughs> and this is like 90, 1995 was in the book, EQ, Emotional Intelligence came out. And so I had, I'd, I'd learned about it recently. And I was like, yeah, I need, I need guys with the EQ and really high IQ. So they gave me Matt Mathis in Atlanta and Sean Walters in New Jersey. And, and so AT&T had a big managed service, uh, multi-billion dollar business out in the Northeast. And then they're singular in the whole Southeast uh, multi-billion dollar business. And, and so Matt and Sean kind of took those respectfully. And then I basically took procurement executives and the whole West. So SBC and AT&T, kind of the central and West time zone. And we basically just put a plan together. I went and met with this executive in the book I call Brickhouse, um, like, the, like the Commodore song, but like literally was a Brickhouse, six foot two, 250 pounds, flat top. And I went to his office in St. Louis and I laid out, my interests and and he put this plan on my desk on his desk and he said this is the business plan called one AT&T I've presented it to my management and he's like look I I I don't really know if there's a a, a solution for you out there you're going to have to go meet with these people and it's going to have to my only coaching to you this is the only coaching he gave if you're not really talking to this one AT&T plan, then no one's going to listen to you. Okay. So just, you can do whatever you want, but just don't waste your time. So he definitely wasn't coaching me deeply. He was just kind of giving me that heads up. It was really cool of him. And I said, 
I'm a little shocked and surprised that you just gave me this. We just met and um, we haven't even talked about technology or anything. And he looked, look, he said, look, between us, I'm not a big fan of CA. I don't like their rep. I don't like their management. I don't like that. They're not a partner. And imagine, he said this, imagine, and he'd worked there for, you know, dozens of years. Imagine integrating and merging all of these multi-billion dollar telcos and the complication, technically, politics, business. Imagine doing that. And then also having vendors who are a pain in your ass or vendors who make life harder, both technically and commercially. So look, I, I'm not making a formal initiative about this, but look, if I could consolidate and get real partners, that would be value to me. And I, and I thought to myself, this is not going to be a technical sell. This is not going to be about demos and proof of concepts. But I but it basically got our team together. And this is where it felt like coaching football. And I was a football coach. And so we would sit there and we would strategize the contingencies and we would talk about all the different players and matchups. And, and like I said, I had a really smart team and Matt and Sean, and we sat down with this plan. And all I said in the plan is, guys, just do whatever you can not to, not to sell and pitch tools. It's never going to work. Let's just go find champions that believe in us and get committed to us for their reasons. And so we did that in parallel to this 10-month journey I had with procurement executive leadership to constantly, you know, have a feedback loop and get aligned to their priorities. We built champions out of procurement. This was a major learning. A lot of people would always tell me in sales, procurement's the enemy. And the procurement team, I'll never, her name was Ann. She was the leader. They, they just wanted what was best. I mean, these people had worked for this company for, for decades and they wanted what was best. They were concerned about the mergers. And they also felt the pain of all these vendors. And we built a, 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 a commercial business justification. But at the end of the day, there was a commercial agreement for about $50 million, five zero. okay? Biggest deal in BMC history on, on, on our side of the business. And so I wasn't intimidated about the size. I had been there before. I had certainty. But we also had built champions in multiple divisions and Sean and Matt were pros and freaking Sean Walters is the chief revenue officer of Datadog, okay? Matt is an executive. We learned from each other with, with this cadence and it just wasn't your typical software demo deal. It was a business deal. We had multiple people who came together and, and if I'm going to land this plane, it's going to get a little painful. And so we're at the end of the year and I'm in my accelerators and I'm talking, we, we had still maintained like big 17% type accelerators. And so if this deal closed, um, past midnight, then my commissions and my team's commissions would be substantially lower because that would get us into the new year. And it's a bittersweet story. I'm not complaining. The Lord has taken care of me in many ways, but let me tell you something. We sat there, Luca Lazaro flew in from Italy. We sat there at headquarters for eight hours after being there for days with a strategic plan with best practices and all these guys. And um, we're sitting there with PwC, the auditors at the freaking fax machine, dude. And uh, we're at headquarters in Houston for BMC. And the deal came in, I think at 12.04. So four minutes into the new year. And Matt and Sean, the whole team, I think 49 people made big money from this deal. It was a really big deal. It was, and it was super important for us as a public company because it supported um, the earnings call that, that our CEO was about to have. And that really created a great earnings. And so um, the deal came in four minutes into the new year. But would I have done anything differently? This leads to my biggest advice for sellers that I always tell them when they're kind of getting started. And they're really, and I'll give you this advice because I know you got a beautiful baby on the way. Dude, manage your expenses. Keep your expenses down. You know, uh, don't stress, don't get into yourself into a jam where you're so stressed about the next paycheck that you do unnatural things, not only in your job, but also at home with your family. Um, and so I had gotten to this more comfortable state. Expenses were managed. It was a, it was a blow for my whole team. We were beyond bummed out. They, they, they still made that phone call the next day. And guess who they call? Hey, CA, you are out. And uh, that was probably the sweetest phone call I got from my champion, letting me know that he made that call. And uh, in the end, uh, those four minutes of loss commissions gave me riches uh, across my career and, and, and learnings. After reading his book and talking to Richard for a while, I noticed something really curious about his interactions with customers. It almost seemed like, contrary to what other people experience, Richard's customers actually wanted to coach him and make him better. 
So I asked him why he thought that was. I've mentioned this before to some folks, but in game theory, you have players that either that are either playing a finite game, like like baseball, right? There's nine innings. You know, whoever's winning by the end of the nine innings, you know, that's the winner. It's a finite game. Like in sales, you got a quota, there's a year, there's a finite game. Then you have the player in the infinite game. Th- that that that's like the Cold War. Like it's gonna go, you know, it, it, there there's not a finite win or lose in a war like that. Same thing in business. A, an operator in a company is trying to merge these companies that just come to, came to the other. They're trying to they're trying to lead digital transformation, right? They're trying to improve profitability, right? Th- that is the long game, all right? Th- that's the infinite game, in other words. So sales has a natural conflict between buyers and sellers, all right? Because buyers are playing the infinite game. That's a totally different game. And then as sellers, we're playing the finite game. None of us are wrong. That's just the reality of our situations. But if organizations in parallel to getting their people passionate about their products and their core differentiators and all that kind of good stuff. But if organizations spent just as much of their resources and energy getting their teams completely aware and empathetic to the situations that that our unique buyers are facing, whatever our product or service does, there are certain problems that it's solving for. And we get them like really intimate into that understanding. And we get all of our teams, maybe we even change their compensation in certain scenarios to find a way to get better aligned to that infinite game that our customers and buyers are playing, even though we've got a finite game to play, that just the effort and the intention of that, I think that we'll find ourselves having far more successful cultures and far more successful um, uh, you know, business outcomes. I knew what I didn't know, and I, I, I wasn't afraid to ask questions. Um, I had already seen that when coaches in sports make these arrogant, emotional decisions without really taking the time to learn and, and ask questions and that they would fail. And, um, I'd already seen how that would cost the team. And so I was just trying to be as efficient as possible with our teams. And I still do that today. Um, and, um, I can't stress enough that if a salesperson wants to become elite and they want to be great the the best master they could they could ever find is the buyer find buyers that are willing to take a coffee with you that are willing to just jump on a zoom um and just ask him like sincere and honest questions about their world uh especially in the context of what what you do um and if you approach initial meetings that way and that's the agenda then i think we'll find that we'll we'll probably take a lot more, uh, a lot more friction out of the cell. So many lessons. And I hope everybody gets their aha deals, man. I, I hope everybody experiences that. McMahon would, would tell us all as leaders, success breeds success. The, the certainty loop, get your teams experiencing success, even when they haven't closed the deal, whether it's talking to your customer success team, talking to your customers, getting your customers to talk on your all hands calls, um, buying Kawin. And implementing integrated stories and win, win experiences and value use, use cases and case, case studies into your operating rhythm, bringing in command of the message and getting that integrated into your business. Like it's, it's, it's not just like a check in the box, man. When you get mindsets certain, that's where swagger comes from. And when we believe, they believe. So uh, these two deals were um, definitely inspirational for me. After hearing about the certainty loop, I asked Richard about any funny moments he had along the way in major deals like this. I'm just naturally immature. Okay. I love, I love being silly with my kids. And so there are times in my career where, um, I wanted to be silly and have a good time. I would like look at the buyer and like, they're, they're cold steel, man. They're like serious. So sometimes you have to really, um, pause and pay attention to who you're working with. And so you ask, did I have any funny experiences? No, I had like some serious experiences that were kind of uncomfortable for me. And um, in fact, it was my, one of my leaders, Kelly Connery, who's been a very successful president multiple times, um, sit down with me and Kelly's also really silly. He's a jokester dude. I mean, he is a practical joker. Um, and he sat down with me and he goes, guys like you and me, we joke, we joke around. He's like, this is a, this is a serious, you got to get serious. 
is a serious group, you know, and that, that's the thing about empathy is that you, sometimes you have to be reminded. And the thing about humility, just, just the same, you have to be reminded. I've got some friends that were in special operations in the military. They would get on a helicopter. They would have a mission. They would have some objectives to meet. That was it. There was nothing else that they were there to do. And if things got sideways, they aborted because they couldn't accomplish the mission. And it was just like this black and white view. Same thing in a deal. We are here to build champions who are going to sell on our behalf. And if they don't have power and influence and access to an economic buyer and they're not selling on our behalf, then we don't have a deal. And so if that, if that's your mission to build a champion and that's solely your mission, then you pay attention to things like your character and how you're building trust and how you're communicating with, with, with buyers. After hearing a lot about Richard's deals, I asked Richard why people should actually care about his book and about champion selling. It took me three years to write the book, to finish it. And it's because I, I wanted to be clear on the purpose of it. Um, I wanted it to serve the purpose of solving the problem that I was experiencing and that I continue to, you know, experience with no matter how strong your playbook or how eloquent you are as a leader or how great the product is, time and time again, we struggle with this problem we call productivity. So if my productivity goal for a rep at a minimum is $850,000 a year, I've got to have uh, an operation that is providing that return on that investment. And I can't have risk to that by having the coverage of my productivity come from like 20% of the people. It's just, it's just too risky. You burn money, you burn, um, you burn people. Um, and it's a horrible way to operate. It's a scary way to operate uh, uh, a sales team, especially when you think about it as an investment, okay? And so I and many of my peers were, were struggling with getting more than 15, 20% of the people hitting their number and, and getting proficient and being able to be autonomous. And so it, it, it's really simple, Michael. The, the one consistent factor and those that were not finding success is that they, they were, they had an inability, a consistent inability to build champions. Some of them, it was, they just couldn't get the importance of it and they weren't committed to it. And that was a leadership problem. Their managers weren't committed and they didn't know how to inspire and get, get people committed to it. In the book, I call, I talk about the evolution of sales that when our products and, and the things that we sold weren't very advanced, especially in the early industrial age, you know, they weren't very advanced. And so we, we sold on emotional selling. We, we found a way to connect to someone's emotions. If, if let's just say I was selling insurance and let's say you, your spouse was away at war during World War II, how would I sell you insurance? You don't have, you don't have like a bunch of surplus of money laying around, but I would emotionally get you connected to a vision of what if, and this is a horrible vision to have, but what if you don't have your spouse to provide? What would that negatively mean to you? And what would be the negative consequences of that? What outcome do you want for yourself? And what if they come back? What kind of level of support do you want? And so it, it, would, it didn't mean that you were closing them right there. They, well, let me sign up, let me buy insurance. It meant that you were disarming them and getting them emotionally connected. So imagine how that has become harder for salespeople as technology has actually advanced in such a crazy way, okay? So technology is amazing now and you should be excited about it and proud of it, but you're still selling to the same human being that would have bought life insurance in 1944. And so if we can't connect emotionally our value proposition to the, to the emotions of why a buyer would first care and two, why they would want to get committed to put their name on, you know, on the line and really get invested in this when they might be at a company that's going through layoffs, then, then you're really going to have struggles if all you're doing is pitching its great differentiation, okay? And so that became, that became a, a, a lot more complicated as technology advanced. And so some people you know, reach out to me and go, oh, it's great. Someone finally wrote a book about building champions as if it's like this single skill. No, it's the most important thing that you can learn and, and perfect and master in this craft of being a great productive salesperson 
is connecting your value proposition to a human being, getting them disarmed, getting them connected to it emotionally and then intellectually, and then getting them to a point of commitment for you, and then getting them to a state of trust where they actually trust you so much that they want to put their reputation on the line. Just that level of that that level of understanding of what champion building is, it's not a skill that just sits on on, you know, on a shell all by itself. The last thing we need is another sales process and another methodology, right? And I learned from a lot of different people that I, that I was communicating with Jane Thompson. She taught me. I've led a lot of uh, people like that. Okay, Amy Gustafson, you know, uh, uh, Kent, Keith Hoskison, Matt Mathis. I felt like by writing the book, I, I was fulfilling my, part of my purpose on this planet, right? And, and, and I know that sounds junky, but, but man, that's how, that's how I think about it. Um, there's not a lot of things I can do in this, in this world to give um, uh, to others. Uh, so this was one of the areas where I felt like uh, if I could teach others how to be successful and how to get financially free in a non-BS way, in a really credible way, then, then I was fulfilling my purpose in serving and, and helping others. I couldn't recommend it more. And I think what really sticks out to me, there's a lot of podcasts out there. Yeah. There's books out there of, you know, here are the three tips to doing X. It's hard to action on one of those. You got so much going on. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the notion of champions and, and that empathy component and understanding there's a buyer on the side, regardless of whatever else you learn from the book, is a way to set yourself mentally. Yeah. And, and even in the um, almost 400 pages in the book, I even simplified into one thing. I, I, as a buyer, have my own world in this infinite game I'm playing here in my company. I got a lot of pain, but there's problems that I'm focused on right now. And there's, man, there's, if I could just solve these problems, there's these outcomes that I would love for myself. So in another way to say it, I got a vision for, for myself and my team, my organization. And if sellers can find a way to connect themselves, their product to that, and then once the connection is there, find a way to get them committed to doing something about it. If, if, if they can get them connected and committed, just focusing on that, these people of power and influence, then they're going to have a very successful sales career. It's timeless. It's timeless. And then just to wrap up here, one last question. You mentioned McMahon and, and a lot of the folks who, who you worked alongside. You know, I just wanted to ask, who are one or two folks that you would just shout out in terms of leaders, you know, mentors, could be peers, it could be people who you've reported to that have impacted your career the most and, and why? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a handful of really important people. I've, I've talked about John a lot. Um, I mentioned Scott Davis and just the loyalty of having my back. And sometimes I didn't even deserve it. And he still had my back, right? And, and he, and he uh, really developed me as an executive too. Um, there's a lot of, there's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of little small impacts, but the major, major impacts it, for me in sales, it started with a guy named Brad Clark. Um, and we're still friends. We're very close after all these years. We share a lot in terms of faith and, and uh, um, passion for sales excellence. But when I was about maybe four years removed from coaching, I was still trying to figure it out. And I'd been sent to trainings like Sandler's and things like that. But I mean, I still was cl pretty clueless. And and so I went to work at a consulting firm. We sold services, consulting, big statements of work and things like that. We were a boutique $20 million consulting firm competing against the big five, the PwCs and Deloitte's and Accenture and all that kind of stuff. Arthur Anderson back then. But, you know, um, he, he taught me. He was a great teacher. And he took the time. He taught me qualification. He, before I'd ever heard of medic, he taught me in a maniacal qualification. And he taught me how to run a freaking sales meeting. He taught me how to walk from the elevator to, I mean, how many of y'all out there reps have a manager, if you're early in your career, who teaches you how to walk from the elevator to the meeting room, right? How, how many of you have managers who are teaching you how to kick off the meeting? And um, so when I learned a lot of, uh, in the psychology of how our minds need to be, our survival minds need to be disarmed, we need familiarity, we need all that before we really um, allow ourselves to you know, trust and connect with a human being. I learned a lot of that from Brad. And um, I hope everybody has that, that manager who 
actually wants to teach the craft of selling. And, um, and I'm not saying that sales is like the only career out there, man. There's a lot of really amazing careers, but it's the one I'm in. It's the one my wife's in. And I mean, it's, it's what I do. So I take pride in it and I want to be great at it, but I couldn't have done that if I hadn't had somebody teach me how to, how to take notes during a meeting and how to lead discovery meetings. And the, 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 it's, you know, the, the, the benefit of having somebody like Brad in, in, in my career, I just challenge all those frontline managers today who are in that first job. Um, even the second lines who, who kind of move from first line to second line really fast. Ask yourself, what kind of investment are you making in your weekly operating rhythm and teaching salespeople and managers the craft, like the real granular stuff and visualize, visualization and role-playing before the debriefing after. Um, I know I may sound like a sales nerd, but look, that's what creates wealth in this business, in this profession, um, the, the little parts of the craft um, to be consistent. And so I, I'm very thankful for Brad and um and many of the leaders uh, i've had but uh he's he's one of the, the most important ones well that's a great one that's a great one and a very unique things you learned from him obviously so uh yeah we'll wrap it up there but uh thank you so much richard this is a pleasure to have you on it was all my pleasure michael congratulations on the business congratulations on being a dad soon um and uh good luck with uh good luck with this podcast and the business and i'm just very grateful and honored that you have me on brother Thanks, as always, for joining us on another episode of The Windwire. We'd appreciate it if you could share it on LinkedIn, Twitter, and rate us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Helps others discover the show and join our growing community. Our contact info is in the show notes, including our show email. You can see all episodes at thewindwire.com and in your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Michael Katz, and this is The Windwire.